Matthew 14, 13 to 21. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, and if you're new, joining us for the first time, a warm welcome to you. And church, it's really, it's really good to be back with you guys in this capacity. Um, these last six weeks were really good for, for my family, and so I just want to thank each of you here who helped make, made that possible. Our family felt so loved. Baby Vin, probably more than anyone else, felt very loved. And a particular thank you uh, to our guest preachers as well, so... Uh, Elder Jeff Toomer, Pastor Tom Kim, and then especially to Elder Andrew Workman. So you're preaching four weeks in a row, it's heavy in the best of times when you're working full-time for a church. You know, Andrew has a full-time job outside of this, so Andrew, a huge thank you uh, to you and to Lisa. You were such a big part of this, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, our, our church was, was so blessed through it, and I think I'm now out of a job because you were, yeah, just did a really fantastic job. Thank you. So, um we are jumping now back into Matthew's gospel. We'll carry on this through Advent, and then we'll pick it up again uh, in the new year. And so Matthew is about how Jesus brings us into a better kingdom. And as we come back in here, now we're entering into this miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 with the, with the bread. And uh, maybe a fun bit of Bible trivia. So there's only two miracles of Jesus that are recorded in all four gospels. This is one of them. Anyone know what the, the other one is? It's the, it's the resurrection. It's the resurrection. That's the other miracle. And the more you study this passage, the more you can see why it's, it's so rich. And as I sat in this passage this week, one of the themes that, there's a lot, but the theme that stuck out to me as we look at this is, it's this idea of what do you do when you feel like you have little to give? Or how do you give to others when you feel like you have so little? And I think about a few months ago, I had to put my favorite pet down, and it came suddenly. That was part of what made it so painful. And as I'm returning home from the animal hospital where I had to put him down, a pet carrier in hand, that which was so heavy on the way out, now poignantly weightless as I walk back into my house. As I'm about to enter into my door, like all I'm thinking about is I just want to go to my room and cry alone. Or I want to put in my AirPods and walk around the neighborhood just listening to sad music. And I open the door, and my two young boys, full of life, as always, you just rush for you. Daddy, how are you? Hey, listen to this. What do you want to do today? And this was an odd space to be in, this duality of emptiness and fullness, loss and new life. Uh, love was in both places, one piercing my heart with pain, the other flooding it with joy. 
And the thing that hit me the most was I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, all I want is comfort right now. I want other people to comfort me. And yet I need to be the one comforting others. And this was a Saturday I had to preach the next day. And I remember I had told Kelsey, I told God, I had texted Andrew, Elder Andrew, and I was just like, how in the world am I supposed to give what's expected of me this weekend when I have so little? And maybe for you, either now or in a season to come, it's going to happen. You feel like you're in a season where you have little to give. You're, you feel depressed. You're dealing with bodily pain. Maybe you feel stuck in a marriage. You're carrying trauma in some way, or you were hurt by somebody you trusted. Uh, you feel inadequate for a task in front of you, maybe in your job. Or maybe you're just worn down by life in general, or the Christian life in particular. And you feel you're in the space of, I have so little to give. And this is the position that Jesus and the disciples find themselves in in this passage. And so as we head into the text and we see how it applies to our lives, it's helpful. You know, so there's this idea of better kingdom that Jesus brings into, meaning when you're loved by God and in relationship with him, you see in all, you see all of life differently. And so it can be helpful to name the other forces and voices that shape us when it comes to what do I do when I feel exhausted or when I feel hurt or that I just can't keep going. And so one camp, you could call it the more conservative camp, which says something to the effect of other people have it worse. Okay, why are you being such a wimp? Okay, get yourself together. Uh, facts don't care about your feelings. Stop being such a snowflake. And there, there's a religious version of this, which is you have God. So what's your problem? You have the Holy Spirit in you. So that, that's one voice that maybe some of you feel. And the other is the voice of that, our, that of our modern therapeutic culture, which says, okay, if you're feeling spent or exhausted, just plunge yourself headlong into self-care, right? So put a strong boundary between you and anyone that may require something of you. Avoid anything that may feel exhausting. Again, just, you know, to the extreme of put your oxygen mask on first before you worry about caring for others. Does Jesus offer us or give us something different? That's what we'll see in this passage. And so here's our outline. First, we'll look at the story, and then number two, we'll draw applications. The most exciting outline in the world, probably not, but sometimes simple is best. Okay, so we'll walk through the story. It'll be about half our time, and then the second half is applying it to our lives. All right, so first, number one, let's let's walk through the story together, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. So when Jesus heard this, what's this? Well, before I was on paternity leave, the passage right before this was this gruesome scene of King Herod's birthday party. And at this birthday party, Jesus' dear friend and cousin, John the Baptist, was beheaded. And Jesus has just found out about this. So imagine you get a call, maybe you have, saying someone you love dearly, suddenly they're gone. Okay, so that's Jesus is as shocked as he is grieved, and so he's trying to go to a desolate place to grieve. And when it says he goes to a desolate place, this doesn't mean he's going to self-medicate by you know, staring at a screen or scrolling through it or just brooding by himself. Jesus going to a desolate place is code for him doing silence and solitude with God. So as the perfect spirit-filled human being, Jesus prioritizes alone time with God. 
Okay, so he goes to bring his grief to the Lord. And so this is why in, in our church, why we prioritize and why we encourage one another in the practice of being with God and being honest with him in our prayers, because if it was needed for Jesus, it's needed for us. However, Jesus' alone time is to be short-lived because he can't even get off the boat to go to this desolate place when he's swamped by a crowd. And it says, note at the end, it says those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So there's probably about fifteen or 20,000 people here when you factor in women and children as well. So massive crowd interrupts Jesus. And in Matthew, the crowd is distinct from Jesus' disciples. So the crowds, they're there, but they're not really there. They're curious, but they're not bought in. They, they're on the periphery. They see Jesus maybe a little bit like a court jester. You're like, what, what trick are you going to do next? Uh, many of them, they're not loyal to Jesus. Many of them are skeptics and critics of Jesus. And so he's interrupted by people who kind of just treat him as a tool. And what does he do? Instead of getting flustered and getting away, no, he has compassion on them and heals them. More on that later. And then it says, so what do the disciples do about this? Verse 15, now it was evening, so at the end of the day, the disciples come to him and say, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go in the villages and buy food for themselves. What the disciples do here makes sense. If you've ever tried to feed a massive crowd of people, you know how difficult it can be. One of, something that I do is I officiate weddings and Usually, one of the most stressful parts of the process of wedding planning for couples is, is what? It's the reception. Okay, the place where everybody eats. So where are we going to sit, people? What about dietary restrictions? Oh my goodness, this is going to be the bill. Hey, fiance, why haven't these 50 people who are procrastinating on your side of the aisle sending their RSVP? It's hard to plan. Okay, like feeding a large group of people is difficult. And imagine if you went to a wedding, and I just, I really want to run this as a simulation, but you go to a wedding, the couple says their vows, and then after the vows and the ceremony, the couple, they turn to you, you're, you're sitting there, and they say, all right, guys, thanks for witnessing, you know, our, 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 our wedding, our marriage. Now, for food, there's a lot of great restaurants in town, so feel free, you can just, hear, here's a list, you can go pick, you know, pay for it yourself, you can have whatever you want. Like, hospitable, no, but practical, yeah, highly practical, <laughs> Okay, save, save them a lot of money and just a lot of headache in the planning. And so that's what the disciples are doing here. They're, they're like, Jesus, we're tired. We didn't even want to deal with all these people, but you have to be Jesus. Okay, so let's, let's just send them. We, we're tired. We don't even have the food anyway. And this scene is set in the middle of a collection of scenes in Matthew that scholars call the rejection narrative. So those of you who like how literature arcs go, you may find this interesting. So uh, right before this chapter, at the end of chapter 13, Jesus is rejected by his old neighbors in his hometown. They say, we knew your mom. We knew you as a toddler running around. You can't be the long-awaited king. So this is the rejection of rationalism. And then right after that, you have the scene at Herod's birthday party where he rejects the word of Jesus through John the Baptist as he is just beset and consumed with drunkenness and lust for his grandniece. So you could say this is the rejection of centralism. Okay, still just as prevalent today. And then now here you have the disciples saying, just, this isn't practical. It's a rejection of realism. Okay, that's an easy, easy objection toward Jesus that we, that we can sympathize with. Like this just, this doesn't seem very realistic. It's not practical. And now here's where things get strange and a little amusing. So in response, Jesus says in verse 16, they don't need to go away. You feed them. 
<laughs> you feed them. And the, the tone they give in reply, it, it has the sense of sarcasm about it. Okay, verse 17, Jesus, we only have five loaves here and two fish. Yeah, okay, Jesus, let's feed the, we got five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus, he doesn't let their practicality get in the way. What does he say? He says, bring it here. Bring it here. And he feeds the crowds with multiple loaves left over. And of note here, as you see Jesus caring for the crowd, just two things that stick out. First, see how Jesus cares for the, well, the the whole point is, see how Jesus cares for the whole person. He cares for them physically. He doesn't say, well, it's all going to burn. I don't really care about your body. I just care about your soul, so I don't care that you're hungry. No, he, he feeds them so that they're filled and satisfied. Because for Jesus, salvation is about the whole person, body and soul. And so for us as disciples of Jesus, caring for the whole person matters. So this is why we have a mercy ministry at our church that helps us partner with foster care families and homeless families to care for the physical and emotional needs of people in our city. We have a mercy fund overseen by the deacons. Uh, Kelsey and I have been recipients of this fund in the past, helping people who can't afford medical bills or grocery bills or rent. Because the physical matters. This is why it's actually a, a spiritual thing if you host people to have a lot of food, so much so that they have room to take over. Just, Jesus always does that. He has an overabundance of food because it's, it's an expression of the kingdom. So he cares for the physical, and yet he also cares for the spiritual. So you notice how the miracles of Jesus never last he feeds the crowd here, and they're going to be hungry again tomorrow. He heals the paralytic, and as the paralytic ages, his joints are going to slow down again. He raises Lazarus from the dead, and Lazarus has to die again. Like, it's kind of laughing about Lazarus being raised from the dead. He's like, dang it, Jesus, I was enjoying heaven, and I have to live on this earth and die again? Or he said, the miracles of Jesus, they don't last. Why? Because they point to a greater reality. The day when Jesus unites heaven and earth as one so that if you are in the kingdom of God, he's bringing you in the world to a place where not only there won't, people won't be hungry or paralyzed again or, and there won't be death, but you won't be lonely again. You'll never have unmet hopes again. You'll never have a painful relationship again. And we get a clue in this because see the language as he takes the bread to break it and give it to the crowd. Verse 19, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, a blessing. So he blesses, then he breaks the loaves and gives them to the disciples. Does that language ring a bell at all? And later on, we'll see this in Matthew chapter 26 when he's at the Lord's Supper. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples. He blesses. He breaks it, and he gives. He's uh, signifying the giving of his body, the, the bread of life, in order that for all who receive it are guaranteed adoption into God's family and life in his kingdom. And so for Jesus, the physical, it absolutely matters, but the spiritual matters more. Because Jesus can fix whatever is going on in your life right now, and he cares about this, but it's of little consequence if for eternity and every human being will live forever, you're separated from God and outside the kingdom of God. 
Okay, so he, care, he deeply cares about the spiritual, and we must too for ourselves and for, and for one another. And so in summary, we see Jesus cut by grief as he's just lost a dear friend. And in the midst of his grief, he has compassion on a crowd and heals them. And he invites his disciples in to partake in caring for this crowd with him. Okay, so that's, that's a summary. What are some applications we can take away? Remember, as we go back to how can I give when I have so little? First, number one, we are the disciples. We're the disciples. The disciples, they are exhausted at the end of the day. And, I mean, you know, even sometimes if you've had a hard work day, it can be tiring to think about, even just, especially, I don't know, our generation. It's like, the thought of having a phone call at the end of, the end of it, it's like, oh my goodness, I gotta do this call on my drive home from work. Okay, the disciples, they've had a long day, and he, here you have this crowd where it's not just that it's, and so first, they're upset because it's an interruption. It's an interruption. Okay, isn't that the spark of a lot of our frustration when somebody just crashes your expectations of how you thought the day was gonna go? So it's an interruption, but number two, the disciples know this crowd doesn't really deserve it. Okay, they haven't demonstrated loyalty or love to Jesus. Uh, many of them are outright skeptics and critics of Jesus. And similar to the disciples, we are selective with who we give our affection to. Okay, so if somebody is worthy and deserving of our respect and trust, then we give them the benefit of the doubt. Okay, then we choose to move forward, move, move toward them and give them grace. If they haven't earned our love or respect, we tell Jesus to make them go away. Okay, so we're, we're selective with our affection, but also we are pragmatic when it comes to how we love other people, especially when we feel spent and we have nothing left. We have nothing left to give. So, because here's what many of us do. We say a version of what the disciples said. We've only got five loaves and two fish. So, God, I'm depressed. I can barely get out of bed. How am I supposed to be a blessing to the people in my life? God, I've, I've never felt very wise. I've never felt like I know what to say in hard situations. How am I supposed to counsel my friend who's in this impossible situation? God, I'm exhausted. God, I'm not as gifted as this person. God, I'm not blank. We focus on the little we have. And what Jesus is, Jesus says, yes, that may be true, but you do have me. And what I love about this story is when the disciples came to Jesus, they said, here's the little we have. He could have pulled an Albus Dumbledore and teleported everybody to the great hall. You know, let the feast begin. And wow, so, you know, sumptuous delicacies appear on golden platters in front of everyone. He, he could have done it. But no, he, he brings the disciples in. And he says, bring your little so that through me, I can do much. And the grammar of this, it, it's as if the miracle is happening under Jesus' hand. So when you look at, at, toward the end of verse 19, when it says he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples. So how you can translate gave them to the disciples, the tense of the verb there is he keeps on giving. So the disciples, they bring their, their little bit of bread to Jesus. He breaks it. He gives it to them. They walk away. They hand it to a group. They come back, and now there's more bread under Jesus' hand. And this is the economy of grace. You bring your little to Jesus, and then it's after you step out in faith, bringing what he's given you to a relationship, to a situation, you come back to Jesus, and you find somehow he has more grace to give you. 
Okay, we focus on, but I need to wait until I feel forgiving. I need to wait until I feel adequate. I need to, to wait until I feel loving. And Jesus says, it's actually when you feel inadequate that you're adequate, because now you're going to be relying on a, on, a, on a power and a presence far greater and more good than yourself. And so bring me your little, and I will do much. And you'll find not only are other people blessed when you are my presence to other people, but you will become blessed as you experience my grace in your life. And so as we think about some applications here to try to make the theoretical a little bit more concrete, I, th- I think about just an example I was thinking through, through my own life. So, man, many, but one is, if I've had a particularly grueling day, by the end of the day, you know, even just come 4 p.m., I am spiritually and emotionally frayed. And when I'm coming back in the house or I'm coming back upstairs in the living room, I, I'm thinking to myself, like, I <laughs> just do not think I have what it takes to now jump in to my family with presence and, you know, mediate conflict between the siblings every five minutes and do the, the bathing and the clothing and the reading t- to my children before bed and to help with dinner and to currently there's this game we're playing outside where my boys pretend to be ambulances on a bike and I pretend to be riding a bike and then I have to theatrically crash and fall over and go, help my leg, I'm hurt. And this is what you'll see in public if you come into the Reeds neighborhood at 4.30 on an afternoon. And, you know, then my boys rush in and somehow they know all this language about how ambulances and hospitals work and, you know, they repair me. But there are just some days where I'm like, I just, I do not have it in me to, to do all of this. And I'm far from a perfect father But I continue to be amazed when I am willing to trust and step out in obedience before I feel like it. That God, he does give me grace and I I trust that he is multiplying my efforts in the lives of my family. And so what is it for you? What might be one small step of faithfulness where you feel like you can approach Jesus and or give to somebody else with just the little bit that you have. Okay, it might be getting out of bed 10 minutes earlier than you normally do rather than reaching for your phone first thing, just going to the Lord and just telling him what's on your mind. It might be extending grace or compassion towards somebody in your home or your family or your workplace that you really don't want to do. It may be initiating a conversation of reconciliation with somebody that you're bitter toward instead of just hoping it'll go away if you suppress it long enough. Whatever your little, your character, your gifts, your openness to the Spirit of God, even your reluctant willingness in the hands of Jesus is a remarkably flexible instrument. So bring your little so that he can do much, because we are the disciples. Number two, we are the crowd. We're the crowd. I don't I don't know about you, but, and yes, pastors go through this too. Does God ever feel distant to you? Inaccessible, even? Like, why is it that some, if he is the most real being in the world, why is it sometimes that he seems so remote? Why is it that a person or even a pet can feel more real than the presence of God? And there are Bible verses that seem to exacerbate this problem. So Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9. 
For my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways, says the Lord. For as high as the heavens are over the earth, so my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. How are you supposed to relate to a God like that? Is this God even interested in you? Worse, is he repelled by you? And this is why we need the scriptures. Because in the scriptures we see Jesus who communicates this repeatedly and then all throughout the New Testament, places like Philippians 2 and Colossians chapter 1, we're told that Jesus is the very image, not a projection, but he's the very image, the substance of the invisible God and in Jesus the fullness of God dwells. Which in plain language means when you look at Jesus, you are seeing God. And so when you look at Jesus treating this crowd and dealing with them, you know it's how God treats you. And so look again at this scene with me. Jesus, he's, he's grieving. When the crowds heard it, they followed him on the, on the foot from the towns, verse 13. Then verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. When Jesus sees the crowd, he doesn't examine them for moral purity. He doesn't screen them, and therefore you, for authenticity of faith. Okay, there's no looking under the hood to see what kind of shame are they carrying, and we all have something we're trying to hide. What is the only qualification the crowd had for God to move forward and care for them and heal them. He saw them. He saw them. And so it is, so it is for you. The only quality you need for God to move toward you with sympathy and care and presence is for him to see you. This was true when he first saved you, if you followed Jesus and brought you to his family. And it's true on the, on the day-to-day, known as his sustaining grace, as he gives nothing less than his full presence if, you're, if you'll be open to receive it. And he, he is bringing you to a day. He heals the crowd here, and as we saw in our Malachi series, where every particularity about you, every hurt, every hope, every point of pain, even the things you don't realize you carry, will be personally mended by God. And I want us to sit in that for just a moment. I don't know if you've ever taken something just to think about that's God's deepest impulse as he sees you, all of you. And if you want proof, let's go back to the bread miracle. So think about the bread miracle. When Jesus breaks the bread and he gives it to the crowd, bread like any food, it can only heal you, feed you, make you whole if it breaks. Okay, so you're you're starving, you're given bread, and it's either you break or the bread. Okay, if the bread stays whole, you can't, right, digest it, you wither and die. Or the bread breaks and therefore you can live, and you're made whole. And so as we think about this imagery, right, it's, it's you or the bread. Go back to those, those words Jesus gave when he, when he takes the bread. He says he, he blesses it, breaks, and gives. Three verbs. 
And these three verbs are at the same, in the same dialogue with him, with his disciples at the Lord's Supper. He blesses, breaks, and gives. These three verbs take place in another, at another moment as well, though. Because on a day we now call Good Friday, 2,000 years ago, okay, God himself is hanging on a cross. And what does he say? What are some of his final words? Father, forgive them. Father, his enemies, he blesses, and I give up my spirit. He breaks and he gives. And so for you, as God, you could say, was on the cross at a moment where you, you could say he had the most little to give. He saw you, and he blesses you, and then he breaks, and he gives. so that you can be made whole, body and soul, in his kingdom, full and free. And so what do you do when you feel like you have little to give? Do you take the approach of, I just got to suck it up, not admit limitations or weakness? Or do I go the other route, just put myself in a cocoon, where I limit any possibility of being exhausted or harmed? Not really. You know, first, you have to see that you're the crowd, which means you can admit weakness and your limitations. You must admit your limitations and weakness because it's only then that you can, you can experience God seeing you and he can't help but love you. And you are the disciples. The disciples felt like they had so little to give, and they did. Emotionally and physically, they had so little to give, but Jesus still wanted them to give their little, and he wants you to give your little. Not so that you have another hard thing to do, but it's an opportunity to enter into the compassion of Jesus, into his economy of grace, and to experience other people as he sees them, how he sees you. And Jesus is Jesus. God himself upholding the world. That passage about thoughts above your thoughts, by the way, are in context of I'm that forgiving. He's God upholding the world, yet kind, tender, loyal, close at hand. And upon seeing you, he blesses you, he breaks, and he gives. And he now asks you to bring your little so that he will do much. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you care for us in this way. Um.